At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as $249. Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you. Evil Deeds at Red Cougar by Robert Howard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Evil Deeds at Red Cougar by Robert Howard I've been accused of prejudice agin the town of Red Cougar on account of my habit of avoiding it if I have to ride fifty miles out in my way to keep from going through there. I denies the slander. It ain't no more prejudiced for me to ride around Red Cougar than it is for a lobo to keep his paw out of a jump trap. My experiences in that there lair of iniquity is painful to recall. I was a stranger and took in. I was a sheep for the fleecin', and if some of the fleecers got their fingers catched in the shears, it was their own fault. If I shuns Red Cougar like a plague, that makes it mutual, because the inhabitants of Red Cougar shuns me with equal enthusiasm, even to the pint of desertin' their wagons and takin' to the bresh if they happen to meet me on the road. I warn't intendin' to go there in the first place. I been punchin' cows over in Utah and was headin' for Bear Creek with the fifty bucks a draw poker game had left me out of my wages. When I seen a trail branchin' off of the main road, I knowed it turned off to Red Cougar, but it didn't make no impression on me. But I hadn't gone far past it when I heard a hoss runnin' and the next thing it busted round a bend in the road with foam flyin' from the bit rings. They was a gal on it, lookin' back over her shoulder down the road. Just as she rounded the turn, her hoss stumbled and went to its knees, throwin' her over its head. I was off a cap'n kid in an instant and catched her hoss before it could run off. I helped her up, and she grabbed hold of me and hollered, "'Don't let em get me!' Who, I said, taking off my hat with one hand and drawing a forty-five with the other. A gang of desperados, she panted. They've chased me for five miles. Oh, please, don't let them get me. They'll tetch you over my dead carcass, I assured her. She give me a look which made my heart turn somersets. She had black curly hair and big innocent gray eyes and she was the purtiest gal I'd seen in a coon's age. Oh, thank you, she panted. I knowed you was a gent the minute I seen you. Will you help me up onto my hoss? You sure you ain't hurt none, I asked, and she said she warn't. So I helped her up, and she gathered up her reins and looked back down the road very nervous. Don't let em foller me, she begged. I'm going on. You don't need to do that, I says. Wait till I exterminate them scoundrels, and I'll escort you home. 
but she started convulsively as the distant pound of hooves wrenched us and said oh i dast not they mustn't even see me again but i want to i said where you live red cougar says she my name's soup richard if you happen up that way drop in i'll be there i promised and she flashed me a dazzling smile and loped on down the road and out of sight up the red cougar trail so i set to work i uses a rope wove out of buffalo hide a right smart longer and thicker and stronger than the average riata because a man my size has got to have a rope to match i tied said lariat across the road about three foot off the ground then i backed captain kidd into the bushes and pretty soon six men swept around the bend the first hoss fell over my rope and the others fell over him and the way they piled up in the road was beautiful to behold before you could bat your eye they was a most amazing tangle of kickin' hosses and cussin' men. I chose that instant to ride out of the brush and throw my pistols down on em. Cease that scandalous language and rise with your hands up, I requested, and they done so, but not cheerfully. Some had been kicked right severe by the hosses, and one had pitched over his cayuse's neck and lit on his head and his conversation weren't no way sensible. "'What's the meaning of this here hold-up?' demanded a tall maverick with long yaller whiskers. "'Shut up,' I told him sternly. "'Men which chases a helpless gal like a pack of injuns ain't fitten for to talk to a white man.' "'Oh, so that's it,' says he. "'Well, let me tell you.' "'I said shut up!' I roared, emphasizing my request by shooting the left tip off of his mustache. I don't aim to powwow with no dern women chasing coyotes. In my country we decorate a live oak with your carcasses. But you don't, began one of the others, but Yowler Whiskers profanely told him to shut up. Don't you see he's one of Ridgeway's men, snarled he. He's got the drop on us, but our turn'll come. Till it does, save your breath. That's good advice, I says. Unbuckle your gun belts and hang em on your saddle horns and keep your hands away from them guns whilst you does it. I'd plumb welcome an excuse to salivate the whole mob of you. So they done it. Then I fired a few shots under the hosses' feet and stampeded em, and they run off down the road the direction they come from. Yeller Whiskers and his pals cussed something terrible. Better save your wind, I advised him. You likely got a good long walk ahead of you before you catches your cayuses. I'll have your heart's blood for this, raved Yeller Whiskers. I'll have your scalp if I have to trail you from here to Judgment Day. You don't know who you're monkeying with. And I don't care, I snorted. Vamoose! they taken out down the road after their hosses, and I shot around their feet a few times to kind of speed them on their way. They disappeared down the road in a faint blue haze of profanity, and I turned around and headed for Red Cougar. I hoped to catch up with Miss Pritchett before she got to Red Cougar, but she had too good a start and was going too fast a gait. 
My heart pounded at the thought of her, and my corns begun to ache. It sure was love at first sight. Well, I'd followed the trail for maybe three miles when I heard guns banging ahead of me. A little bit later I come to where the trail forked, and I didn't know which and led the red cougar. Whilst I was sitting there wondering which branch to take, I heard hosses running again, and pretty soon a couple of men hove into sight, spurring hard and bending low like they was expecting to be shot from behind. When they approached me, I seen they had badges onto their vests and bullet holes in their hats. Which is the road to Red Cougar? I asked politely. Thatton, says the older feller, pintin' back the way they'd come. But if you're aimin' to go there, I advises you to reflect deeply on the matter. Ponder, young man, ponder and meditate. Life is sweet after all. What you mean? I asked. Who y'all chasin'? Chasin' hell, says he, polishing his sheriff's badge with his sleeve. We're bein' chased. Buck Ridgeway's in town. Never heard of him, I says. Well, says the sheriff, Buck don't like strangers no more than he does law officers, and you see how well he likes them. This here's a free country, I snorted. When I stays out of town on account of this here Ridgeway or anybody else, there'll be ice in hell thick enough for the devil to skate on. I'm going to visit a young lady, Miss Sue Pritchard. Can you tell me where she lives? They looked at me very peculiar, and the sheriff says, Oh, in that case, well, she lives in the last cabin north of the general store, on the left-hand side of the street. Let's get going, urged his deputy nervously. They may follow us. They started spurring again, and as I rode off I heard the deputy say, Reckon he's one of them? And the sheriff said, If he ain't, he's the biggest damn fool that ever lived to come sparkin' soup Pritchett. Then they rode out of hearin'. I wondered who they was talkin' about, but soon forgot it as I rode on into Red Cougar. I come in on the south end of the town, and it was about like all them little mountain villages. One straggling street, hound dogs sleeping in the dust of the wagon ruts, and a general store, and a couple of saloons. I seen some hosses tied at the hitching rack outside the biggest saloon, which said Max Bar on it. But I didn't see nobody on the streets, though noises of hilarity was coming out of the saloon. I was thirsty and dusty, and I decided I better have me a drink and spruce up some before I called on Miss Pritchard. So I watered Captain Kidd at the trough and tied him to a tree. If I'd tied him to the hitch rack, he'd a kicked the tar out of the other hosses, and went into the saloon. They weren't nobody in there but an old coot with gray whiskers tendin' bar, and the noise was all comin' from another room. From the racket I judged they was a bowlin' alley in there, and the gents was bowlin'. I beat the dust out of my pants with my hat and called for whiskey. Whilst I was drinking it, the feller said, Stranger in town, eh? I said I was, and he said, Friend of Buck Ridgeways? 
Never seen him in my life, says I. And he says, Then you better get out of town fast as you can dust it. Him and his bunch ain't here. He pulled out just a little while ago. But Jeff Middleton's in there, and Jeff's plenty bad. I started to tell him I weren't studying Jeff Middleton, but just then a lot of whooping bust out in the bowling alley like somebody'd made a tin strike or something. And here comes six men busting into the bar, whooping and yelling and slapping one of them on the back. Decorate the mahogany, McVeigh, they whooped. Jeff's buying. He just beat Tom Grissom here six straight games. They surged up to the bar, and one of them tried to jostle me aside, but as nobody ain't been able to do that successful since I got my full growth, all he done was sprain his elbow. This seemed to irritate him, because he turned around and said heatedly, What the hell you think you're doing? I'm drinking me a glass of corn squeezins, I replied coldly. And they all turned around and looked at me, and they moved back from the bar and hitched at their pistol belts. They was a hard-looking gang, and the fellow they called Middleton was the hardest-looking one of them. Who are you and where'd you come from? he demanded. None of your damn business, I replied with a touch of old southern courtesy. He showed his teeth at this and fumbled at his gun belt. Are you trying to start something? he demanded, and I seen McVeigh hide behind a stack of beer kegs. I ain't in the habit of starting trouble, I told him. All I does is end it. I'm in here drinking me a quiet dram when you coyotes come surging in, hollering like you was the first critter which ever hit a pin. So you depreciates my talents, eh? He squalled like he was stung to the quick. Maybe you think you could beat me, eh? I ain't seen the man which could hold a candle to my game, I replied with my usual modesty. All right, he yelled, grinding his teeth. Come into the alley, and I'll show you some action, you big mountain grizzly. Hold on, says McVeigh, sticking his head up from behind the kegs. Be careful, Jeff. I believe that's... I don't care who he is, raved Middleton. He has give me a mortal insult. Come on, you, if you got the nerve. You be careful with them insults, I roared menacingly, striding into the alley. I ain't the man to be bulldozed. I was looking back over my shoulder when I shoved the door open with my palm, and I probably pushed harder than I intended to, and that's why I tore the door off of the hinges. They all looked kind of startled, and McVeigh give a despairing squeak, but I went on into the alley and picked up a bowl ball which I brandished in defiance. Here's fifty bucks, I says, waving the greenbacks. We puts up fifty each and rolls for five dollars a game. That suits you? I couldn't understand what he said, because he just made a noise like a wolf grabbing a beefsteak, but he snatched up a bulldog and produced ten five-dollar bills, so I judged it was agreeable with him. But he had an awful temper, and the longer we played, the madder he got. And when I beat him five straight games and taken twenty-five out of his fifty, the vein stood out purple onto his temples. It's your role, I says, 
and he throwed his bowl ball down and yelled, "'Blast your soul! I don't like your style! I'm through, and I'm taking down my stake! You gets no more of my money, damn you!' "'Why, you cheap-heeled piker!' I roared. "'I thought you was a sport, even if you was a hoss-thief, but—' "'Don't call me a hoss-thief!' he screamed. "'Well, cow-thief, then,' I says, if you're so dern particular.' It was at this instant that he lost his head to the point of pulling a pistol and firing at me point-blank. He would have undoubtedly shot me, too, if I hadn't hit him in the head with my bowl-ball just as he fired. His bullet went into the ceiling, and his friends began to display their disapproval by throwing pins and bulldogs at me. This irritated me, almost beyond control, but I kept my temper and taken a couple of them by the neck and beat their heads together till they was limp. The matter would have ended there without any violence, but the other three insisted on taking the thing serious, and I defy any man to remain tranquil when three hoss-thieves are carving at him with buoys and beating him over the head with tin-pins. But I didn't intend to bust the big ceiling lamp. I just hit it by accident with the chair which I knocked one of my enemies stiff with and it weren't my fault if one of em got blood all over the alley. All I'd done was break his nose and knock out seven teeth with my fist. How'd I know he was going to fall in the alley and bleed on it? As for that section of wall which got knocked out, all I can say is it's a dern flimsy wall which can be wrecked by throwing a man through it. I thought I'd throwed him through a window till I looked closer and seen it was a hole he busted through the wall. And can I help it if them scallywags blowed holes in the roof till it looked like a sieve trying to shoot me? It wasn't my fault nohow. But when the dust settled and I looked round to see if I'd made a clean sweep, I was just in time to grab the shotgun, which old man McVeigh was trying to shoot me through the barroom door with. You ought to be ashamed, I reproved. A man of your age and venerable whiskers, trying to shoot a defenseless stranger in the back. But my bowling alley's wrecked, he wept, tearing the aforesaid whiskers. I'm a ruined man. I sunk my wad in it, and now look at it. Ah, oh, well, I says, it warn't my fault, but I can't see an honest man suffer. Here's seventy-five dollars, all I got. "'Tain't enough,' says he, nevertheless making a grab for the dough like a kingfisher diving after a pollywog. "'Tain't near enough.' "'I'll collect the rest from them coyotes,' I says. "'Don't do it,' he shuddered. "'They'd kill me after you left.' "'I want to do the right thing,' I says. "'I'll work out the rest of it.' He looked at me right sharp then and says, come into the bar. But I seen three of them was coming too, so I hauled them up and told them sternly to tote their friends out to the hoss trough and bring them too. They done so, kind of wabbling on their feet. They acted like they was still addled in the brains, and McVeigh said it looked to him like Middleton was out for the day. But I told him it was quite common for a man to be like that, which has just had a fifteen-pound bowling ball split into two over his head. 
Then I went into the bar with McVeigh, and he poured out the drinks. Are you in earnest about working out that debt? says he. Sure, I said. I always pays my debts, by fair means or foul. Ain't you Breckenridge Elkins? says he. And when I says I was, he says, I thought I recognized you when them fools was badgering you. Look out for them. That ain't all of them. The whole gang rode into town an hour or so ago and run the sheriff and his deputy out. But Buck didn't stay long. He seen his gal, then he pulled out for the hills again with four men. They's a couple more besides them, you fit, hanging round somewheres. I don't know where. Outlaws, I said. And he said, Sure, but the local law force ain't strong enough to deal with em. And anyway, most of the folks in town is in cahoots with em, and warns em if officers from outside come after em. They hang out in the hills, ordinary, but they come into Red Cougar regular. But never mind them, I was just putting you on your guard. This is what I want you to do. A month ago, I was coming back to Red Cougar with a tidy fortune in gold dust I'd panned back up in the hills when I was held up and robbed. It weren't one of Ridgeway's men. It was Three Fingers Clements, an old lone wolf and the wust killer in these parts. He lives by himself up in the hills and nobody knows where. But I just recent learned by accident he sent a message by a sheepherder, and the sheepherder got drunk in my saloon and talked. I learned he still got my gold and aims to sneak out with it as soon as he's joined by a gang of desperados from Tomahawk. It was them the sheepherder was taking the message to. I can't get no help from the sheriff. These outlaws has got him plumb buffaloed. I want you to ride up into the hills and get my gold. Of course, if you're scared of him. Who says I was scared of him or anybody else, I demanded irritably. Tell me how to get to his hideout, and I'm on my way. McVeigh's eyes kind of gleamed, and he says, Good boy. Follow the trail that leads out of town to the northwest till you come to Diablo Canyon. Follow it till you come to the fifth branch gulch opening into it on the right. Turn off the trail then and follow the gulch till you come to a big white oak tree nigh the left hand wall. Climb up out of the gulch there and head due west up the slope. Pretty soon you'll see a crag like a chimney sticking out above a clump of spruces at the foot of that crag they's a cave, and Clements is living there, and he's a tough old... It's as good as did, I assured him, and had another drink, then went out and clumb aboard Cap'n Kid and headed out of town. But as I rode past the last cabin on the left, I suddenly remembered about Sue Pritchard, and I allowed three fingers could wait long enough for me to pay my respects on her. Likely she was expecting me and getting nervous and impatient because I was so long coming. So I reined up to the stoop and hailed, and somebody looked at me through a window. They also appeared to be a rifle muzzle trained on me, too, but who could blame folks for being cautious with them Ridgeway coyotes in town? 
Oh, it's you, said a female voice. Then the door opened and Sue Pritchard said, Light and come in. Did you kill any of them rascals? I'm too soft-hearted for my own good, I says, apologetically. I just merely only sent them on down the road on foot. But I ain't got time to come in now. I'm on my way up in the mountains to see Three Fingers Clements. I aim to stop on my way back if it's agreeable with you. Three Fingers Clements, says she in a peculiar voice. Do you know where he is? McVeigh told me, I said. He's got a poke of dust he stole from McVeigh. I'm going after it. She said something under her breath, which I must have misunderstood, because I was sure Miss Pritchard wouldn't use the word it sounded like. Come in just a minute, she begged. You've got plenty of time. Come in and have a snort of corn juice. My folks is all visiting, and it gets mighty lonesome to a gal. Please come in. Well, I never could resist a pretty gal, so I tied Cap'n Kid to a stump that looked solid and went in. She brung out her old man's jug. She said she never drunk none personal. We sat and talked, and there wasn't a doubt we cottoned to each other right spang off. There is some that says that Breckenridge Elkins ain't got a lick of sense when it comes to women folks, among these being my cousin, Bearfield Buckner. But I vow and declare that same is my only weakness, if any, and that likewise it is a manly weakness. This Sue Pritchard was plumb sensible, I seen. She wasn't one of these flighty kind that a feller would have to court with a banjo or a guitar. We talked round about bear traps and what was the best length barrel on shotguns and similar subjects of like nature. I've likewise told her one or two of my mild experiences and her eyes boogered big as saucers. We finally got around to my latest encounter. Tell me some more about Three Fingers, she coaxed. I didn't know anybody knowed his hideout. So I told her what all McVeigh said, and she was a heap interested, and had me repeat the instructions how to get there two or three times. Then she asked me if I'd met any bad men in town, and I told her I'd met six, and they was now recovering on pallets in the back of the general store. She looked startled at this, and pretty soon she asked me to excuse her because she heard one of the neighbor women calling her. I didn't hear nobody, but I said all right, and she went out the back door, and I heard her whistle three times. I sat there and had another snort or so and reflected that the gal was undoubtedly taken with me. She was gone quite a spell. And finally I got up and looked out the back window and seen her standing down by the corral talking to a couple of fellers. As I looked, one of them got on a bobtailed roan and headed north at a high run, and the other come on back to the cabin with Sue. This here's my cousin, Jack Montgomery, says she. He wants to go with you. He's just a boy and likes excitement. He was about the hardest-looking boy I ever seen and he seemed remarkable mature for his years. But I said, All right, but we gotta get going. Be careful, Breckenridge, she advised. You too, Jack. I won't hurt three fingers no more than I got to, I promised her. 
and we went on our way yonderly, headed for the hideout. We got to Diablo Canyon in about an hour, and went up it about three miles till we come to the gulch mouth McVeigh had described. All at once, Jack Montgomery pulled up and pointed down to a pool we was passing in a holler of the rock, and hollered, Look there! Gold dust scattered at the edge of the water! I don't see none, I says. Light, he urged, taking off his cayuse. I see it. It's thick as butter along the edge. Well, I got down and bent over the pool, but I couldn't see nothing, and all at once something hit me in the back of the head and knocked my hat off. I turned around and seen Jack Montgomery holding the bent barrel of a Winchester carbine in his hands. The stock was busted off, and pieces was lying on the ground. He looked awful surprised about something. His eyes was wild, and his hair stood up. Are you sick? I asked. What you want to hit me for? You ain't human, he gasped, dropping the bent barrel and jerking out his pistol. I grabbed him and taken it away from him. What's the matter with you? I demanded. Are you locoed? For answer, he run off down the canyon, shrieking like a lost soul. I decided he must have went crazy like sheep herders does sometimes, so I pursued him and catched him. He fit and hollered like a painter. Stop that, I told him sternly. I'm your friend. It's my duty to your cousin to see you don't come to no harm. Cousin hell, says he with frightful profanity. She ain't no more my cousin than you be. Poor feller, I sighed, and throwing him on his belly, reached for his lariat. You're out of your head and suffer from hallucinations. I knowed a sheep herder just like you onst, only he thought he was sitting bull. What you doin', he hollered as I started tying him with his rope. Don't you worry, I soothed him. I can't let you go tearin' round over these mountains in your condition. I'll fix you so's you'll be safe and comfortable till I get back from Three Fingers Cave. Then I'll take you to Red Cougar and we'll send you to some nice, quiet, insane asylum. Blast your soul, he shrieked. I'm as sane as you be, a damn sight saner, because no man with a normal brain could ignore getting a rifle stock broke over his skull like you done. Whereupon he tries to kick me between the eyes and otherwise give evidence of what I once heard a doctor call his derangement. It was a pitiful sight to see, especially since he was a cousin to Miss Sue Pritchard and would undoubtedly be my cousin-in-law one of these days. He jerked and wrestled, and some of his words was downright shocking. But I didn't pay no attention to his ravens. I always heard the way to get along with crazy people was to humor em. I was afeard if I left him laying on the ground the wolves might chaw him, so I tied him up in the crotch of a big tree where they couldn't reach him. I likewise tied his hoss by the pool where he could drink and graze. Listen, Jack begged as I clumb on to Captain Kidd. I give up. Untie me and I'll spill the beans. I'll tell you everything. You just take it easy, I soothed. I'll be back soon. Expletive deleted, says he, frothing slightly at the mouth. With a sigh of pity, I turned up the gulch, and his language, till I was clean out of sight, ain't to be repeated.
A mile or so on, I come to the white oak tree and clumb out of the gulch and went up a long slope till I seen a jut of rock like a chimney rising above the trees. I slid off a cabin kid and drawed my pistols and snuck forward through the thick brush till I seen the mouth of a cave ahead of me, and I also seen something else, too. A man was lying in front of it with his head in a pool of blood. I rolled him over, and he was still alive. His scalp was cut open, but the bone didn't seem to be caved in. He was a lanky old coot with reddish-gray whiskers, and he didn't have but three fingers on to his left hand. There was a pack tore up and scattered on the ground nigh him, but I reckon the pack mule had run off. They was also hoss tracks leading west. There was a spring nearby, and I brung my hat full of water and sloshed it into his face and tried to pour some into his mouth, but it warn't no go. When I throwed the water over him, he kind of twitched and groaned, but when I tried to pour the water down his gullet, he kind of instinctively clamped his jaws together like a bulldog. Then I seen a jug settin' in the cave, so I brung it out and pulled out the cork. When it popped, he opened his mouth convulsively and wrenched out his hand. So I poured a pint or two down his gullet, and he opened his eyes and glared wildly around till he seen his busted pack. Then he clutched his whiskers and shrieked, They got it! My polka dust! I've been hiding up here for weeks, and just when I was going to make a jump for it, they finds me. Who? I asked. Buck Ridgeway and his gang, he squalled. I was careless. When I heard horses, I thought it was the men which was coming to help me take my gold out. Next thing I knowed, Ridgeway's bunch had run out of the brush and was beating me over the head with their colts. I'm a ruined man. Hell's fire, quoth I with passion. Them Ridgeways was beginning to get on to my nerves. I left old man Clements howling his woes to the sky like a timber wolf with the bellyache, and I forked Captain Kidd and headed west. They'd left a trail the youngest kid on Bear Creek could follow. It led for five miles through as wild a country as I ever seen outside the Humboldts. Then I seen a cabin ahead on a wide benchland, and that backed again a steep mountain slope. I could just see the chimney through the tops of a dense thicket. It weren't long till sundown, and smoke was coming out of the chimney. I knowed it must be the Ridgeway hideout. So I went bustin' through the thicket in such a hurry I forgot they might have a man on the lookout. I'm powerful absent-minded that way. They was one all right, but I was comin' so fast he missed me with his buffalo gun, and he didn't stop to reload, but run into the cabin yellin', Bore the door quick! Here comes the biggest man in the world on the biggest hoss in creation! They done so. When I emerged from amongst the trees, they opened up on me through the loopholes with sawed-off shotguns. If it had been Winchesters, I'd have ignored em, but even I'm a little bashful about buckshot at close range when six men is shooting at me all at once. So I retired behind a big tree and begun to shoot back with my pistols.
and the howls of them worthless critters when my bullets knocked splinters in their faces was music to my ears. They was a corral some distance behind the cabin with six hosses in it. To my surprise, I seen one of em was a bobtailed roan the feller was riding, which I seen talking with Sue Pritchard and Jack Montgomery, and I wondered if them blame outlaws had captured him. But I warn't accomplishing much shooting at them loopholes, and the sun dipped lower, and I begun to get mad. I decided to rush the cabin anyway, and to hell with their dern buckshot, and I dismounted and stumped my toe right severe on a rock. It always did madden me to stump my toe, and I uttered some loud and profane remarks, and I reckon them scoundrels must have thunk I'd stopped some lead the way they whooped. But just then I had an inspiration. A big thick smoke was pouring out of the rock chimney, so I knowed they was a big fire on the fireplace where they was cooking supper, and I was sure there weren't but one door in the cabin. So I'd taken up the rock, which is about the size of an ordinary pig, and throwed it at the chimney. Boys on Bear Creek is ashamed if they have to use more than one rock on a squirrel in a hundred-foot tree across the creek, and I didn't miss. I hit her center, and she buckled and come crashing down in a regular shower of rocks, and most of them fell down into the fireplace as I knowed by the way the sparks flew. I judged that the coals was scattered all over the floor, and the chimney hole was blocked so the smoke couldn't get out that way. Anyway, the smoke began to pour out the winders, and the ridge weighers stopped shooting and started hollering. Somebody yelled, The floor's on fire! Throw that bucket of water on it! And someone else shrieked, Wait, you damn fool! That ain't water, it's whiskey! But he was too late. I heard the splash, and then a most amazing flame sprung up and licked out of the winders, and the fellers hollered louder than ever, and yelled, Let me out! I got smoke in my eyes! I'm choking to death! I left the thicket and run to the door, just as a man throwed it open and staggered out, blind as a bat, and cussing and shooting wild. I was afeard he'd hurt himself if he kept tearing around like that, so I'd taken his shotgun away from him and bent the barrel over his head to kind of keep him quiet. Then I seen to my surprise he was the feller which rode the bobtail roan. I thunk how surprised Sue'd be to know a friend of hern was a cussed outlaw. I then went into the cabin which was so full of smoke and gunpowder fumes a man couldn't hardly see nothing. The walls and roof was on fire by now, and them idiots was tearing around with their eyes full of smoke, trying to find the door, and one of them run head on into the wall and knocked himself stiff. I throwed him outside and got hold of another and to lead him out, and he cut me across a bosom with his buoy. I was so stung by this ingratitude that when I tossed him out to safety I maybe throwed him further than I aimed to, and it appears they was a stump which he hit his head on. But I couldn't help it being there. I then turned around and located the remaining three, which was fighting with each other, evidently thinking they was fighting me. Just as I started for em, a big log fell out of the roof and knocked two of em groggy, 
and sought their clothes on fire, and a regular sheet of flame sprung up and burnt off most of my hair, and whilst I was dazzled by it the surviving outlaw run past me out the door, leaving his smoking shirt in my hand. Well, I dragged the other two out and stomped on em to put out the fire, and the way they hollered you'd a thought I was injuring em instead of saving their fool lives. Shut up and tell me where the gold is, I ordered, and one of em gurgled, Ridgeway's got it. I asked which one of em was him, and they all swore they wasn't, and I remembered the feller which run out of the cabin. So I looked round and seen him just leading the hoss out of the corral to ride off bareback. You stop! I roared, letting my voice out full, which I seldom does. The acorns rattled down out of the trees, and the tall grass bent flat, and the hoss Ridgeway was fixing to mount, got scared and jerked away from him and bolted, and the other hosses knocked the corral gate down and stampeded. Three or four of them run over Ridgeway before he could get out of the way. He jumped up and headed out across the flat on foot, wabbling some but going strong. I could have shot him easy, but I was afeard he'd hid the gold somewheres, and if I killed him he couldn't tell me where. So I run and got my lariat and taken out after him on foot, because I figured he'd duck into the thick brush to get away. But when he seen I was overhauling him, he made for the mountainside and begun to climb a steep slope. I followed him, but before he was much more than halfway up, he'd taken refuge on a ledge behind a dead tree and started shooting at me. I got behind a boulder about seventy-five foot below him, and asked him to surrender like a gent, but his only reply was a direct slur on my ancestry and more bullets, one of which knocked off a sliver of rock which gouged my neck. This annoyed me so much that I pulled my pistols and started shooting back at him. But all I could hit was the tree, and the sun was going down, and I was afeard if I didn't get him before dark, he'd manage to sneak off. So I stood up, paying no attention to the slug he put in my shoulder, and swang my lariat. I always uses a ninety-foot rope. I got no use for them little bitsy pieces of string most punchers uses. I throwed my noose and looped that tree and sought my feet solid and heaved and tore the dern tree up by the roots. But them roots went so deep, most of the ledge come along with em, and that started a landslide. The first thing I knowed, here comes the tree and ridgeway and several tons of loose rock and shale, gathering weight and speed as they come. It sounded like thunder rolling down the mountain, and Ridgeway's screams was frightful to hear. I jumped out from behind the boulder, intending to let the landslide split on me and grab him as it went past me, but I stumbled and fell, and that dern tree hit me behind the ear, and the next thing I knowed I was traveling down the mountain with Ridgeway and the rest of the avalanche. It was very humiliating. I was right glad at the time, I recollect, that Miss Sue Pritchard wasn't nowheres near to witness this catastrophe. It's hard for a man to keep his dignity, I found, 
when he's scooting in a hell slew of trees and brush and rocks and dirt, and I become aware, too, that a snag had tore the seat out of my pants, which makes me some despondent. This, I figured, is what a man gets for losing his self-control. I recollected another time or two when I'd exposed myself to the consequences by exerting my full strength, and I made me a couple of promises then and there. It's all right for a single young feller to go hellin' around and let the chips fall where they may, but it's different with a man like me who is almost just the same as practically married. You got to look before you leap was the way I reckoned it. A man's got to think of his wife and children. We brung up at the foot of the slope in a heap of boulders and shale, and I throwed a few hundred pounds of busted rock off of me and riz up and shaken the blood out of my eyes and looked around for Ridgeway. I presently located a boot sticking out of the heap, and I laid hold on to it and hauled him out. He looked remarkable like a skint rabbit. About all the clothes he had left on to him besides his boots was his belt, and I seen a fat buckskin poke stuck under it. So I dragged it out, and about that time he sought up groggy and looked round dizzy and moaned feeble. Who the hell are you? Breckenridge Elkins of Bear Creek, I said. And with all the men they is in the state of Nevada, he says weakly, I had to tangle with you. What you gonna do? I think I'll turn you and your gang over to the sheriff, I says. I don't hold much with law. We ain't never had none on Bear Creek. But such coyotes as you all don't deserve no better. A hell of a right you got to talk about law, he said fiercely, after plotting with Badger McVeigh to rob old man Clements. That's all I done. What you mean, I demanded. Clements robbed McVeigh of this here dust. Robbed hell, says Ridgeway. McVeigh is the crookedest cuss that ever lived. Only he ain't got the guts to commit robbery hisself. Why, Clements is an honest miner, the old jackass, and he panned that there dust up in the hills. He's been hiding for weeks, scared to try to get out of the country. We was hunting him too industrious. McVeigh put me up to committin' robbery, I ejaculated, aghast. That's just what he did, declared Ridgeway and I was so overcome by this perfidy, I was plumb paralyzed. Before I could recover, Ridgeway gave a convulsive flop and rolled over into the bushes and was gone in an instant. The next thing I knowed, I heard hosses running, and I turned in time to see a bunch of men riding up on me. Old man Clements was with them, and I recognized the others as the fellers I stopped from chasing Sue Pritchard on the road below Red Cougar. I retched for a pistol, but Clements yelled, Hold on! They're friends! He then jumped off and grabbed the poke out of my limp hand and waved it at them triumphantly. See that? he hollered. Didn't 
tell you he was a friend? Didn't I tell you he come up here to bust up that gang? He got my gold back for me, just like I said he would. He then grabbed my hand and shaked it, energetic, and says, These is the men I sent to Tomahawk for, to help me get my gold out. They got to my cave just a while after you left. They're prejudiced agin you, but no, we ain't, denied Yaller Whiskers, which I now seen was wearing a deputy's badge. And he got off and shaken my hand heartily. You didn't know we was special law officers, and I reckon it did look bad, six men chasing a woman. We thought you was a outlaw. We was pretty mad at you when we finally caught our horses and headed back, but I begun to wonder about you when we found them six disabled outlaws in the store at Red Cougar. Then when we got to Clement's cave and found you'd befriended him and had lit out on Ridgeway's trail, it looked still better for you. But I still thought maybe you was after that gold on your own account. But of course I see now I was all wrong, and I apologizes. Where's Ridgeway? He got away, I said. Never mind, says Clements, pumping my hand again. Kirby here and his men has got Jeff Middleton and five more men in the jail at Red Cougar. McVeigh, the old hypocrite, taken to the hills when Kirby rode into town, and we got six more of Ridgeway's gang tied up over at Ridgeway's cabin, or where it was till you burned it down. They're sure a battered mob. It must have been a awful fight. You look like you've been through a tornado yourself. Come on with us and our prisoners to Tomahawk. I buys you a new suit of clothes, and we celebrates. I got to get a feller I left tied up in a tree down the gulch, I said. Jack Montgomery. He's at loco weed or something. He's crazy. They laughed hearty, and Kirby says, You've got a great sense of humor, Elkins. We found him when we come up the gulch and brung him on with us. He's tied up with the rest of them back there. You sure was slick, foolin' McVeigh into telling you where Clements was hiding, and foolin' that whole Ridgeway gang into thinkin' you aimed to rob Clements. Too bad you didn't know we was officers so we could a worked together. But I got a laugh when I think how McVeigh thought he was chippin' you into stealin' for him, and all the time you was just studyin' how to rescue Clements and bust up Ridgeway's gang. Ha, ha, ha. But I, I didn't, I begun dizzily because my head was swimming. You just made one mistake, said Kirby, and that was when you let slip where Clements was hiding. But I never told nobody but Sue Pritchard, I says wildly. Many a good man has been euchred by a woman, says Kirby tolerantly. We got the whole yarn from Montgomery. The minute you told her... She snuck out and called in two of Ridgeway's men and sent one of them fogging it to tell Buck where to find Clements, and she sent the other, which was Montgomery, to go along with you and lay you out before you could get there. She lit for the hills when we come into Red Cougar, and I bet her and Ridgeway are streaking it over the mountains together right now. But that ain't your fault. You didn't know she was Buck's gal. The perfect. Fidity of women.
Gimme my hoss, I said groggily. I've been scorched and shot and cut and fell on by a avalanche, and my honest love has been betrayed. You seize before you the singed, skint, and blood-soaked result of female treachery. Fate has dealt me the joker. My heart is busted, and the seat is tore out of my pants. Get out of the way. I'm riding. Where to, they asked, awed. Anywheres, I bellers, just so it's far away from Red Cougar. End of Evil Deeds at Red Cougar High Horse Rampage by Robert Howard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. High Horse Rampage by Robert Howard I got a letter from Aunt Saragossa Grimes the other day, which said, Dear Breckenridge, I believe time is softening your cousin Bearfield Buckner's feelings toward you. He was over here to supper the other night, just after he shot the three Evans boys, and he was in the best humor I seen him in since he got back from Colorado. So I just kind of casually mentioned you and he didn't turn near as purple as he used to every time he heard your name mentioned. He just kind of got a little green around the ears, and that might have been on account of him choking on the bar meat he was eating. And all he said was he was going to beat your brains out with a post-oak mall if he ever catched up with you which is the mildest remark he's made about you since he got back to Texas. I believe he's practically give up the idea of sculping you alive and leaving you on the prairie for the buzzards with both legs broke like he used to swear was his sole ambition. I believe in a year or so it would be safe for you to meet dear cousin Bearfield and if you do have to shoot him, I hope you'll be broad-minded and shoot him in some place which ain't vital, because, after all, you know it was your fault to begin with. We're all well and nothing's happened to speak of, except Joe Allison got a arm broke arguing politics with Cousin Bearfield. Hoping you air the same, I begs to remain. Your lovin' Aunt Saragossa. It's hardenin' to know a man's kin is thinkin' kindly of him and forgettin' petty grudges. But I can see that Bearfield has been misrepresentin' things and pisonin' Aunt Saragossa's mind agin me. Otherwise she wouldn't have made that there remark about it bein' my fault. All fair-minded men knows that what happened weren't my fault that is, all except Bearfield, and he's naturally prejudiced 
because most of it happened to him. I knowed Bearfield was somewheres in Colorado when I joined up with old man Brant Mulholland to make a cattle drive from the Pecos to the Platte, but that didn't have nothing to do with it. I expects to run into Bearfield almost any place where the liquor is red and the shotguns is sawed offs. He's a liar when he says I come into the high horse country a purpose to wreck his life and ruin his career. Everything I'd done to him was in kindness and kindredly affection, but he ain't got no gratitude. When I think of the javelina meat I ate and the barefoot bandits I had to associate with whilst living in old Mexico to avoid having to kill that worthless critter, his present attitude embitters me. I never had no notion of visiting High Horse in the first place, but we run out of grub a few miles north of there, so what does old man Mulholland do but rout me out of my blankets before daylight, and says, I want you to take that chuck wagon to High Horse and buy some grub. Here's fifty bucks. If you spends a penny of that for anything but bacon, beans, flour, salt, and coffee, I'll have your life, big as you be. Why don't you send the cook, I demanded. He's laying helpless in a chaparral thicket, reeking from the fumes of vanilla extract, says old man Mulholland. Anyway, you're responsible for this famine. But for your inhuman appetite, we'd a had enough grub to last the whole drive. Get going. You're the only man in the string I trust with money, and I don't trust you no further than I can heave a bull by the tail. Us Elkins is sensitive about such remarks, but old man Mulholland was born with a conviction that everybody is out to swindle him, so I maintained a dignified silence outside of telling him to go to hell, and harnessed the mules to the chuck wagon and headed for Antioch. I led Captain Kidd behind the wagon, cause I knowed if I left him unguarded, he'd kill every he-hoss in the camp before I got back. Well, just as I was coming to the forks where the trail to Gallego splits off from the high horse road, I heard somebody behind me thumping a banjo and singing, Old Nora, he did build the ark. So I pulled up and pretty soon round the bend come the derndest looking rig I'd seen since the circus come to war paint. It was a buggy, all painted red, white, and blue, and drawed by a couple of wall-eyed pintos, and they was a feller in it with a long-tailed coat and a plug hat and fancy checked vest and a cross-eyed nigger playing a banjer with a monkey set in his shoulder. The white man, taking off his plug hat, made me a bow and says, Greetings, my mastodonic friend. Can you inform me which of these roads leads to the fair city of High Horse? That's leading south, I says. T'other'n goes east to Gallego. Are you all part of a circus? I resents the implication, says he. In me, 
you behold the greatest friend to humanity since the inventor of corn liquor. I am Professor Horace J. Latimer, inventor and sole distributor of that boon to suffering humanity, Latimer's Lenative Local Elixir, good for man or beast. He then heisted a jug out from under the seat and showed it to me and a young feller which had just rode up along the road from Gallego. A sure cure, says he. Have you a hoss which has nibbled the seductive loco weed? That huge brute you've got tied to the end gate there looks remarkable wild in his eye now. He ain't loco, I says. He's just bloodthirsty. Then I bid you both a very good day, sirs, says he. I must be on my way to allay the sufferings of mankind. I trust we shall meet in high horse. So he drove on, and I started to cluck to the mules, when a young feller from Gallego, which had been eyeing me very close, he says, Ain't you Breckenridge Elkins? When I says I was, he says with some bitterness, That there professor don't have to go to a high horse to find locoed critters, there's a man in Gallego right now, crazy as a bedbug. It's your own cousin, Bearfield Buckner. What? says I with a violent start, because they hadn't never been no insanity in the family before. Only Bearfield's great-granduncle Esau, who once voted again Hickory Jackson, but he recovered before the next election. It's the truth says the young feller. He's suffering from a hallucination that he's going to marry a gal over to a high horse by the name of Ann Wilkins. They ain't even no gal there by that name. He was having a fit in the saloon when I left, me not bearing to look on the ruins of a once noble character. I'm feared he'll do hisself a injury if he ain't restrained. Hell's fire, I said in a great agitation. Is that the truth? True as my name's Lem Campbell, he declared. I thought being as how you're a relation of his'n, if you could kind of get him out to my cabin a few miles south of Gallego and keep him there a few days. Maybe he might get his mind back. I'll do better than that, I says, jumping out of the wagon and tying the mules. Foller me, I says, forkin' Captain Kidd. The professor's buggy was just going out of sight around a bend, and I lit out after it. I was well ahead of Lem Campbell when I overtaken it. I pulled up beside it in a cloud of dust and demanded, You say that stuff cures man or beast? Absolutely, declared Latimer. Well, turn around and head for Gallego, I said. I got you a patient. But Gallego is but a small island village, he demurs. There's a railroad and many saloons at high horse, and with a human reason at stake, you sets and maunders about railroads, I roared, drawing a forty-five and impulsively shooting a few buttons off his coat. I buys your whole load of loco liquor. Turn around and head for Gallego. I wouldn't think of arguing, says he, turning pale. 
Meshack, don't you hear the gentleman? Get out from under that seat and turn these hosses around. Yes, sir, says Meshack, and they swung round, just as Lem Campbell galloped up. I hauled out the wad old man Mulholland gimme, and says to him, Take this dough on to high horse and buy some grub, and have it sent out to old man Mulholland's cow camp on the little Yankton. I'm going to Gallego, and I'll need the wagon to lug Cousin Bearfield in. I'll take the grub out myself, he declared, grabbing the wad. I knowed I could depend on you as soon as I seen you. So he told me how to get to his cabin, then lit out for High Horse, and I headed back up the trail. When I passed the buggy, I hollered, Foller me into Gallego. One of you drive the chuck wagon which is standing at the forks, and don't try to shake me as soon as I get out of sight, neither. I wouldn't think of such a thing, says Latimer with a slight shudder. Go ahead, and fear not. We'll follow you as fast as we can. So I dusted the trail for Gallego. It warn't much of a town, only just one saloon, and as I rode in I heard a valor in the saloon and the door flew open, and three or four fellows come sailing out on their heads and picked themselves up and tore out up the street. Yeah, I says to myself, Cousin Bearfield's in town all right. Gallego looked about like any town does when Bearfield is celebrating. The stores had their doors locked and the shutters up. Nobody was on the streets. And off down across the flat, I seen a man, which I'd taken to be the sheriff, spurring his hoss for the hills. I tied Captain Kidd to the hitch rail, and as I approached the saloon, I nearly fell over a feller which was crawling around on his all fours with a bartender's apron on and both eyes swelled shut. Don't shoot says he. I give up. What happened? I asked. The last thing I remember was telling a feller named Buckner that the democratic platform was silly, says he. Then I think the roof must have fell in or something. Surely one man couldn't have did all of this to me. You don't know my cousin Bearfield, I assured him as I stepped over him and went through the door which was tore off its hinges. I'd begun to think that maybe Lem Campbell had exaggerated about Bearfield. He seemed to be acting in just his ordinary normal manner. But an instant later I changed my mind. Bearfield was standing at the bar in solitary grandeur, pouring himself a drink, and he was wearing the damnedest-looking red, yaller, green, and purple shirt ever I seen in my life. What, I demanded in horror, is that thing you got on? If you're referring to my shirt, he retorted with irritation, it's the classiest piece of goods I could find in Denver. I bought it special for my wedding. It's true, I moaned. He's crazy as hell. I know no sane man would wear a shirt like that. What's crazy about getting married? He snarled, biting the neck off of a bottle and taking a big snort. Folks does it every day. I walked round him cautious, sizing him up and down, 
which seemed to exasperate him considerable. "'What the hell's the matter with you?' he roared, hitching his harness forward. "'I got a good mind to—' "'Be calm, Cousin Bearfield,' I soothed him. "'Who's this gal you imagine you're going to marry?' "'I don't imagine nothing about it, you ignorant ape,' he retorts cantankerously. "'Her name's Ann Wilkins, and she lives in High Horse. "'I'm riding over there right away, and we gets hitched today.' "'I shaken my head mournfully and says, "'You must a inherited this from your great-granduncle Esau. "'Paps always said Esau's insanity might crop out in the Buckners again sometime. "'But don't worry.' Esau was cured and voted a straight democratic ticket the rest of his life. You can be cured too, Bearfield, and I'm here to do it. Come with me, Bearfield, I says, getting a good wrestling grip on his neck. Consarn it, says Cousin Bearfield, and went into action. We went to the floor together and started rolling in the general direction of the back door and every time he comes up on top he'd bang my head again in the floor, which soon became very irksome. However, about the tenth revolution, I come up on top and pried my thumb out of his teeth, and said, Bearfield, I don't want to have to use force with you, but, oh, that was on account of him kicking me in the back of the neck. My motives was of the loftiest, and they weren't no use in the saloon owner bellyaching the way he done afterwards. Was it my fault if Bearfield missed me with a five-gallon demijohn and busted the mirror behind the bar? Could I help it if Bearfield wrecked the billiard table when I knocked him through it? As for the stove which got busted, all I got to say is that self-preservation is the first law of nature. If I hadn't hit Bearfield with the stove, he would have undoubtedly scrambled my features with that busted beer mug he was trying to use like brass knucks. I've heard maniacs fight awful, but I don't know as Bearfield fit any different than usual. He hadn't forgot his old trick of hooking his spur in my neck whilst we was rolling around on the floor, and when he knocked me down with the roulette wheel and started jumping on me with both feet, I thought for a minute I was going to weaken, but the shame of having a maniac in the family revived me, and I throwed him off and riz and tore up a section of the brass footrail and wrapped it round his head. Cousin Bearfield dropped the buoy he'd just drawed and collapsed. I wiped the blood off of my face and discovered I could still see out of one eye. I pried the brass rail off of Cousin Bearfield's head and dragged him out onto the porch by a hind leg, just as Professor Latimer drove up in his buggy. Meshack was behind him in the chuck wagon with the monkey, and his eyes was as big and white as saucers. "'Where's the patient?' asked Latimer, and I said, "'This here's him. Throw me a rope out of that wagon. We takes him to Lem Campbell's cabin where we can dose him.' till he recovers his reason. Quite a crowd gathered whilst I was tying him up, and I don't believe Cousin Bearfield had many friends in Gallego by the remarks they made. When I lifted his limp carcass up into the wagon, one of them asked me if I was a law. And when I replied I weren't, pretty short, 
he says to the crowd. Why, hell then, boys, what's to keep us from paying Buckner back for all the lickings he'd give us? I tell you, it's our chance. He's unconscious and tied up, and this here feller ain't no sheriff. Get a rope, howled somebody. We'll hang him. They begun to surge forwards, and Latimer and Meshack was so scared they couldn't hardly hold the lines. But I mounted my hoss and pulled my pistols, and says, Meshack, swing that chuck wagon and head south. Professor, you follow him. Hey, you, get away from them mules. One of the crowd had tried to grab their bridles and stop em, so I shot a heel off in his boot, and he fell down, hollering bloody murder. Get out of the way, I bellered, swinging my pistols on the crowd, and they give back in a hurry. Get going, I says, firing some shots under the mule's feet to encourage him. And the chuck wagon went out of Gallego, jumping and bouncing with Meshack holding on to the seat and hollering blue ruin. And the professor come right behind it in his buggy. I followed the professor, looking back to see nobody didn't shoot me in the back because several men had drawed their pistols. But nobody fired till I was out of good pistol range. Then somebody let loose with a buffalo rifle, but he missed me by at least a foot, so I paid no attention to it, and we was soon out of sight of the town. I was afeard Bearfield might come to and scare the mules with his bellerin, but that brass rail must have been harder than I thought. He was still unconscious when we pulled up to the cabin, which stood in a little wooded cove amongst the hills a few miles south of Gallego. I told Meshack to unhitch the mules and turn them into the corral whilst I carried Bearfield into the cabin and laid him on a bunk. I told Latimer to bring in all the elixir he had, and he brung ten gallons in one-gallon jugs. I give him all the money I had to pay for it. Pretty soon Bearfield come to and he raised his head and looked at Professor Latimer sitting on a bunk opposite him in his long-tailed coat and plug hat, the cross-eyed nigger and the monkey sitting beside him. Bearfield batted his eyes and said, My God, I must be crazy. This can't be real. Sure, you're crazy, Cousin Bearfield, I soothed him. But don't worry, we're going to cure you. Bearfield, here, interrupted me with a yell that turned Meshack the color of a fish's belly. Untie me, you son of perdition, he roared, heaving and flopping on the bunk like a python with a bellyache, straining against his ropes till the veins knotted blue on his temples. I ought to be in high horse right now, getting married. See there, I sighed to Latimer. It's a sad case. We'd better start dosing him right away. Get a drenching horn. What size dose do you give? A quarter at a shot for a hoss, he says doubtfully. But we'll start out with that, I says. We can increase the size of the dose if we need to. Ignoring Bearfield's terrible remarks, I was just twisting the cork out of a jug when I heard someone say, What the hell are you doing in my shack? I turned around and seen a bow-legged critter with drooping whiskers glaring at me, kind of pop-eyed from the door. What do you mean, your shack? I demanded, irritated at the interruption. This shack belongs to a friend of mine which has lent it to us. You're drunk or crazy, says he, clutching at his whiskers convulsively. Will you get out peaceably, 
or does I have to get violent? Oh, a cussed claim jumper, eh? I snorted, taking his gun away from him when he drawed it. But he pulled a buoy, so I throwed him out of the shack and shot into the dust around him a few times, just for warning. I'll get even with you, you big lummox, he howled as he ran for a scrawny-looking sorrel he had tied to the fence. I'll fix you yet, he promised bloodthirstily, as he galloped off, shaking his fist at me. Who do you suppose he was? wondered Latimer, kind of shaky. And I says, what the hell does it matter? Forget the incident and help me give Cousin Bearfield his medicine. That was easier said than did. Tied up as he was, it was all we could do to get that there elixir down him. I thought I never would get his jaws pried open, using the poker for a lever. But when he opened his mouth to cuss me, we jammed the horn in before he could close it. He left the marks of his teeth so deep on that horn, it looked like it had been in a bar trap. He kept on heaving and kicking till we'd poured a full dose down him. Then he kind of stiffened out and his eyes went glassy. When we'd taken the horn out, his jaws worked, but he didn't make no sound. But the professor said hosses always acted like that when they'd had a good healthy shot of the remedy. So we left Meshack to watch him, and me and Latimer went out and sat down on the stoop to rest and cool off. Why ain't Meshack unhitched your buggy? I asked. You mean you expect us to stay here overnight? says he aghast. Overnight hell, says I. You stays till he's cured if it takes a year. You may have to make up some more medicine if this ain't enough. You mean to say we got to wrestle with that maniac three times a day like we just did? squawked Latimer. Maybe he won't be so violent when the remedy takes hold, I encouraged him. Latimer looked like he was going to choke, but just then inside the cabin sounds a yell that even made my hair stand up. Cousin Bearfield had found his voice again. We jumped up, and Meshack came out of the cabin so fast he knocked Latimer out into the yard and fell over him. The monkey was right behind him, streaking it like his tail was on fire. Oh, Lordy, yelled Meshack, heading for the tall timber. That crazy man am bustin' dem ropes like they was twine. He gonna kill us all, show. I run into the shack and seen Cousin Bearfield rollin' around on the floor and cussin' amazin', even for him. And to my horror, I seen he'd busted some of the ropes so his left arm was free. I pounced on it, but... For a few minutes all I was able to do was just to hold on whilst he throwed me hither and thither around the room with freedom and abandon. At last I kind of wore him down and got his arm tied again, just as Latimer run in and done a snake dance all over the floor. Meshack is gone, he howled. He was so scared he run off with a monkey and my buggy and team. It's all your fault. Fault. Being too winded to argue, I just heaved Bearfield up on the bunk and staggered over and sat down on the othern, whilst the professor pranced and whooped and swore that I owed him for his buggy and team. Listen, I said when I got my wind back, I spent all my money for that elixir, 
But when Bearfield recovers his reason, he'll be so grateful he'll be glad to pay you hisself. Now forget such sordid trash as money and devote your scientific knowledge to getting Bearfield sane. Sane, howls Bearfield. Is that what you're doing? Tying me up and poisoning me? I've tasted some awful muck in my life, but I never dreamt nothing could taste as bad as that stuff you poured down me. It plumb paralyzes a man. Let me loose, damn it. Will you be calm if I untie you? I asked. I will, he promised heartily. Just as soon as I festoon the surrounding forest with your entrails. Still violent, I said sadly. We better keep him tied, Professor. But I'm due to get married in High Horse right now, Bearfield yelled, given such a convulsive heave that he throwed himself clean off of the bunk. It was his own fault, and there weren't no use in him later blaming me because he hit his head on the floor and knocked himself stiff. Well, I said, at least we'll have a few minutes of peace and quiet around here. Help me lift him back onto his bunk. What's that? yelped the professor, jumping convulsively, as a rifle cracked out in the brush and a bullet whined through the cabin. That's probably droopin' whiskers, I says, lifting Cousin Bearfield. I thought I seen a Winchester on his saddle. Say, it's getting late. See if you can't find some grub in the kitchen. I'm hungry. Well, the professor had an awful case of the willies, but we found some bacon and beans in the shack and cooked em and ate em and fed Bearfield, which he'd come to when he smelt the grub cooking. I don't think Latimer enjoyed his meal much, because every time a bullet hit the shack he jumped and choked on his grub. Droopin' Whiskers was pretty persistent, but he was so far back in the brash he wasn't doing no damage. He was a rotten shot anyhow. All his bullets was way too high, as I pointed out to Latimer. But the professor weren't happy. I didn't dare untie Bearfield to let him eat. So I made Latimer set by him and feed him with a knife. And he was scared and shook so he kept spilling hot beans down Bearfield's collar. And Bearfield's language was awful to hear. Time we got through, it was long past dark, and Droopin' Whiskers had quit shooting at us. As it later appeared, he'd run out of ammunition and had gone to borrow some cartridges from a ranch house some miles away. Bearfield had quit cussing us. He just laid there and glared at us with the most horrible expression I ever seen on a human being. It made Latimer's hair stand up. But Bearfield kept working at his ropes, and I had to examine him every little while and now and then put some new ones on him. So I told Latimer we'd better give him another dose, and when we finally got it down him, Latimer staggered into the kitchen and collapsed under the table, and I was as near wore out myself as an Elkins can get. But I didn't dare sleep for fear Cousin Bearfield would get loose and kill me before I could wake up. I sought down on the other bunk and watched him, and after a while he went to sleep, and I could hear the professor snoring out in the kitchen. About midnight I lit a candle, and Bearfield woke up and said, Blast your soul, you done woke me up out of the sweetest dream I ever had. I dreamt I was fishing for sharks off Mustang Island. What's sweet about that? I asked. I was using you for bait, 
he said. Hey, what you doing? It's time for your dose, I said. And then the battle started. This time he got my thumb in his mouth and would undoubtedly have chawed it off if I hadn't a kind of stunned him with the iron skillet. Before he could recover himself, I had the elixir down him with the Ada Latimer, which had been woke up by the racket. How long is this going on? Latimer asked despairingly. Ow! It was drooping whiskers again. This time he crawled up pretty close to the house, and his first slug combed the professor's hair. I'm a patient man, but I've reached my limit, I snarled, blowing out the candle and grabbing a shotgun off the wall. Stay here and watch Bearfield whilst I go out and hang drooping whiskers hide to the nearest tree. I snuck out of the cabin on the opposite side from where the shot come from and begun to sneak around in a circle through the brush. The moon was come up and I knowed I could out-engine drooping whiskers. Any Bear Creek man could. Sure enough, pretty soon I slid around a clump of bushes and seen him bending over behind a thicket whilst he took aim at the cabin with a Winchester. So I emptied both barrels into the seat of his breeches, and he gave a most amazing howl, and jumped higher than I ever seen a bow-legged feller jump, and dropped his Winchester and taken out up the trail toward the north. I was determined to run him clean off the range this time, so I pursued him and shot at him every now and then, but the darn gun was loaded with birdshot, and all the shells I'd grabbed along with it was the same. I'd never seen a white man run like he did. I never got close enough to do no real damage to him, and after I'd chased him a mile or so, he turned off into the brush, and I soon lost him. Well, I made my way back to the road again and was just fixin' to step out of the brush and start down the road toward the cabin when I heard hosses comin' from the north. So I stayed behind a bush and pretty soon a gang of men come round the bend, walking their hosses, with the moonlight glinting on Winchesters in their hands. Easy now, says one. The cabin ain't far down the road. We'll ease up and surround it before they know what's happening. I wonder what the shooting was we heard a while back, says another, and kind of nervous. Maybe they was fighting amongst theirselves says yet another. No matter. We'll rush in and settle the big feller's hash before he knows what's happening. Then we'll string Buckner up. Why you reckon they kidnapped Buckner for? Some feller begin. But I waited for no more. I riz up from behind the bushes and the hosses snorted and reared. Hang a helpless fella because he's licked you in a fair fight, eh? I bellered and let go both barrels amongst them. They was riding so close grouped, don't think I missed any of them. The way they hollered was disgusting to hear. The hosses was scared at the flash and roar right in their faces, and they wheeled and bolted, and the whole gang went thundering up the road a dern sight faster than they'd come. I sent a few shots after them with my pistols, but they didn't shoot back and pretty soon the weeping and wailing died away in the distance. A fine mob they turned out to be, but I thought they might come back, so I sat down behind a bush where I could watch the road from Gallego. 
and the first thing I knowed I went to sleep, in spite of myself. When I woke up, it was just coming daylight. I jumped up and grabbed my guns, but nobody was in sight. I guess them Gallego gents had got a belly full. So I headed back to the cabin, and when I got there, the corral was empty, and the chuck wagon was gone. I started on a run for the shack. Then I seen a note stuck on the corral fence. I grabbed it. It said, Dear Elkins, this strain is too much for me. I'm getting white-haired sitting and watching this devil laying there, glaring at me, and wondering all the time how soon he'll bust loose. I'm pulling out. I'm taking the chuck wagon and team in payment for my rig that Meshack ran off with. I'm leaving the elixir, but I doubt if it'll do Buckner any good. It's for locoed critters, not homicidal maniacs. Respectfully yours, Horace J. Latimer, Esquire. Hell's fire, I said, wrathfully starting for the shack. I don't know how long it took Bearfield to wiggle out of his ropes. Anyway, he was laying for me behind the door with the iron skillet, and if the handle hadn't broke off when he landed me over the head with it, he might a did me an injury. I don't know how I ever managed to throw him, because he fit like a frothin' maniac, and every time he managed to break loose from me, he grabbed a jug of Latimer's local elixir and busted it over my head. By the time I managed to stun him with a table leg, he'd busted every jug on the place, and the floor was swimming in elixir, and my clothes was soaked in it, where they wasn't soaked with blood. I fell on him and tied him up again, then sought on a bunk, and tried to get my breath back, and wondered what in hell to do, because here the elixir was all gone, and I didn't have no way of treating Bearfield, and the professor had run off with a chuck wagon, so I hadn't no way to get him back to civilization. And then, all at once, I heard a train whistle away off to the west and remembered that the track passed through just a few miles to the south. I did all I could for Bearfield. Only thing I could do now was get him back to his folks, where they could take care of him. I run out and whistled for Captain Kidd and he busted out from around the corner of the house where he'd been laying for me, and tried to kick me in the belly before I could get ready for him. But I weren't fooled. He's tried that trick too many times. I dodged and give him a good bust in the nose. Then I throwed the bridle and saddle on him, and brung Cousin Bearfield out and throwed him across the saddle and headed south. That must have been the road both Meshack and Latimer taken when they run off. It crossed the railroad track about three miles from the shack. The train had been whistling for high horse when I first heard it. I got to the track before it come into sight. I flagged it and it pulled up, and the train crew jumped down and wanted to know what the hell I was stopping them for. I got a man here which needs medical attention, I says. It's a case of temporary insanity. I'm sending him back to Texas. Hell, says they, this train don't go nowheres near Texas. Well, I says, you unload him at Dodge City. He's got plenty of friends there which'll see that he gets took care of. I'll send word from High Horse to his folks in Texas, telling them to go after him. So they loaded Cousin Bearfield on, him being still unconscious, and I give the conductor his watch and chain and pistol 
to pay for his fare. Then I headed along the track for High Horse. When I got to High Horse, I tied Captain Kidd nigh the track and started for the depot, when who should I run smack into but old man Mulholland, who immediately gave a howl like a hungry timber wolf. "'Where's the grub, you hoss-thief?' he yelled before I could say nothing. "'Why, didn't Lim Campbell bring it out to you?' I asked. "'I never seen a man by that name,' he bellered. "'Where's my fifty bucks?' "'Heck,' I says, he looked honest. "'Who?' yowled old man Mulholland. "'Who, you polecat?' "'Lem Campbell, the man I give the dough to for him to buy the grub,' I says. "'Oh, well, never mind. I'll work out the fifty. The old man looked like he was fixing to choke. He gurgled. "'Where's my chuck-wagon?' "'A feller stole it,' I said, but I'll work that out, too.' "'You won't work for me,' foamed the old man, pulling a gun. "'You're fired. As for the dough and the wagon, I take some out of your hide here and now.' Well, I'd taken the gun away from him, of course, and tried to reason with him. But he just hollered that much louder, and got his knife out and made a pass at me. Now it always did irritate me for someone to stick a knife in me, so I'd taken it away from him and throwed him into a nearby hoss trough. It was one of these here V-shaped troughs which narrows together at the bottom, and somehow his fool head got wedged and he was about to drown. Quite a crowd had gathered, and they tried pulling him out by the hind legs, but his feet was waving around in the air so wild that every time anyone tried to grab him, they got spurred in the face. So I went over to the trough and taken hold of the sides and tore it apart. He fell out and spit up maybe a gallon of water. And the first words he was able to say, he accused me of trying to drown him on purpose, which shows how much gratitude people has got. But a man spoke up and says, Hell, big fella didn't do it on purpose. I was right here and I seen it all. And another one said, I seen it as good as you did, and the big feller did try to drown him, too. Are you calling me a liar? said the first feller, reaching for his gun. But just then another man chipped in and said, I don't know what the argument's about, but I bet a dollar you're both wrong. And then some more fellers butted in, and everybody started cussing and hollering till it nigh deafened me. Somebody else reaches for a gun, and I seen that as soon as one feller shoots another, there is bound to be trouble, so I started to gentle the first one by hitting him over the head. Next thing I know, someone hollers at me, you big hyener, and tries to ruin me with a knife. Pretty soon there's hitting and shooting all over the town. High horse is sure on a rampage. I just had finished blunting my colts on a varmint's head when I thinks disgustedly, heck, Elkins, you come to this town on a mission of good will. You got business to do. You got your poor family to think about. I started to go on to the depot, but I heard a familiar voice screech above the racket. There he is, Sheriff. Arrest the dern claim jumper. I whirled around quick, and there was Droopin' Whiskers, a saddle blanket wrapped around him like an engine and walkin' pretty spraddle-legged. He was pintin' at me and hollerin' like I did something to him. 
Everybody else quieted down for a minute, and he hollered, Arrest him, Durning! He throwed me out of my own cabin and ruined my best pants with my own shotgun. I've been to Knife River and come back several days quicker'n I aimed to, and this here big hyena was in charge of my shack. He was too durn big for me to handle, so I come to high horse after the sheriff. Soon as I got three or four hundred bird shot picked out of my hide. What you got to say about this? asked the sheriff, kind of uncertain, like he weren't enjoying his job for some reason or other. Why, hell, I says disgustedly. I throwed this varmint out of a cabin, sure, and later peppered his anatomy with birdshot, but I was in my rights. I was in a cabin which had been loaned me by a man named Lem Campbell. Lem Campbell, shrieked Droopin' Whiskers, jumping up and down so hard he nigh lost the blanket he was wearing instead of breeches. That worthless critter ain't got no cabin. He was working for me till I fired him, just before I started for Knife River, for being so trifling. Hell's fire, I says, shocked. Ain't there no honesty any more? Shucks, stranger, it looks like the joke's on me. At this, Droopin' Whiskers collapsed into the arms of his friends with a low moan and the sheriff says to me uncomfortably, "'Don't take this personal, but I'm afeard I'll have to arrest you, if you don't mind.' Just then a train whistled away off to the east, and someone says, "'What the hell? They ain't no train from the east due this time of day.' Then the depot agent run out of the depot waving his arms, yelling, "'Get them cows off on the track!' i just got a flash from Knife River. The train's coming back. A maniac named Buckner busted loose and made the crew turn her around at the switch. Order's gone down the line to open the track all the way. She's coming under full head of steam. Nobody knows where Buckner's taking her. He's looking for some relative of his'n. There was a lot of noise coming down that track, and all of it weren't the noise that a steam engine makes by itself. No, that noise was a different noise all right. That noise was right familiar to me. It struck a chord in my mind. It made me wonder kind of what happened to them train men. Can that be Bearfield Buckner? wondered a woman. It sounds like him. Well, if it is, he's too late to get Ann Wilkins. What? I yelled, is they a gal in this town named Ann Wilkins? They was, she snickered. She was to marry this Buckner man yesterday, but he never showed up. And when her old beau, Lynn Campbell, come along with fifty dollars he'd got someplace, she up and married him. They lit out for San Francisco on their honeymoon. Why, what's the matter, young man? You look right green in the face. Maybe it's something you et. It weren't nothing I et. It was the thoughts I was thinking. Here I had gone and ruined Cousin Bearfield's whole future, and out of kindness. That's what busted me wide open. I had ruined Cousin Bearfield's future out of kindness. My motives had been of the loftiest. I'd tried to cure a hombre what was loco from going locoer yet. 
And what was my reward? What was my reward? Just that moment I looks up and seen a cloud of smoke a-puffin' down the track, and they is a-roarin' like the roarin' of a herd of catamounts. Here she comes round the bend, someone yelled. She's burnin' up the track. Listen to that whistle, just bustin' it wide open. But I was already a straddle captain kid and travelin'. The man which says I'm scared of Bearfield is a liar. Uh, Elkins fears neither man, beast, nor Buckner. But I seen that Lim Campbell had worked me into getting Bearfield out of his way, and if I waited till Bearfield got there, I'd have to kill him or get killed, and I didn't crave to do neither. I headed south just to save Cousin Bearfield's life, and I didn't stop till I was in Durango. Let me tell you, the revolution I got mixed up in there was a plumb restful relief after my association with Cousin Bearfield. End of High Horse Rampage What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.